we need to talk about the street protests. But before we do that, as a segue to that question, major cosmopolitan cities such as Istanbul, Ankara, Izmir, and Antalya voted no to the um, proposed changes in the constitution. In southeast Turkey also, most Kurdish voters voted no. What do these results tell us in terms of base of support for ruling AKP party and also vice versa? What does it say about people who were opposing the uh, referendum, in particular the Republican Party, CHP, the centrist party, and the leftist People's Democratic Party, HDP? First of all, I think it's very important because the main, the backbone of the AKP as well as Erdoganism as the regime, is the informal working class in urban cities. I think sociologically speaking, the most important development in Turkey over the last half a century is urbanization. Turkey is now a predominantly urban country, and this will have political consequences, of course. And I think the first consequence was the rise of Islamism and then the transformation of Islamism into a neoliberal Islamism. The transformation of AKP, you know, the transmutation of the welfare party of the 80s into the AKP of the 2000s. And this is the most important dynamic. This is an early sign of a process showing us that the AKP is losing the urban electorates. We have to see how this is going to develop. It does not mean, however, that the opposition parties can capitulate on that. In other words, that people are not endorsing AKP's constitutional proposition does not mean that they are going to vote for CHP or for HDP. There is no one-to-one relationship there. No, not at all. Because the referendum was about the constitutional structure, whether it's going to be one-man show or whether uh, there's going to be limits and checks on the executive power. But elections are basically about who's going to rule, which is another question. Because then the electorate will be looking at, you know, what kind of coalitions are possible. We saw this already with June 7 elections two years ago when the electorate didn't give the AKP the mandate to form a single-party government. In other words, the AKP didn't get the majority in the parliament. And then for three months, Erdogan's main strategy was basically to show the people that if in the absence of a single-party government by the AKP, there would be no government in Turkey, which was very scary for the people for several reasons that the fear that this would trigger an economic crisis, it would trigger a security crisis, overall instability. So people, uh, I think, not only when they're making their choices about elections, they're not only thinking about their ideal choices, but also about uh, what kind of government can emerge from the choices that they make. And up to this point, at least, the CHP, for example, doesn't look like a Uh, alternative to AKP anyway, because in order to be an alternative, the party has to provide an alternative to the Syria policy, to Iraq policy, to Kurdish policy, to relations with the West, economic policy. None of this 
is coming from the CHP, basically. And that's the centrist party. It used to be. Yes, that's the center left. I mean, um, I would rather say that it has social democratic members or social yeah. democratic factions within it. Yes, it is part of the Socialist International. It uh, has defined itself to the left of center since 70s, since late 1960s, which was actually a response to the emergence of the Turkish Workers' Party. So when the workers' movement was on the rise and the workers' union leaders founded a workers' party, which even entered the parliament back in the late 60s, that was the Republican People's Party's attempt to capitulate on this and to basically win these new urban voters to the Republican People's Party. But the Republican People's Party is the founding Kemalist organization of the Republic. And it feels very much as the real... Um, protector of the established... Owner, I would say. Not just protector, but owner of uh, the state. What I said for uh, the MHP also goes for the CHP in a sense, in the sense that when they do their political calculations, it's not just the electorate that they're looking to. It's also their people in the judiciary, their connections in the ministries, their connections in the military especially. So, for example, I think most of their policies towards the Kurdish question, as well as, for example, like the vote in the Council of Europe or how they endorsed, for example, AKP's bombing in Sinjar two days ago, this all shows us that when they're taking these positions, they're coordinating with this deep state. It's the calculus of power and having access to the state apparatus. The leader of the CHP is a retired bureaucrat, high-ranking bureaucrat. And if you look at the people that they work with, for example, they are mostly also coming from these you know, high-ranking bureaucrats or from businessmen who are connected to you know, larger business circles. So basically, the CHP, I think, first and foremost, its connections in the state, secondly, capital and capital factions, especially Istanbul capital, like Tusiat, for example, is very important. International markets, international capital, I think it was also a factor, basically, when the CHP realized that the international markets actually endorsed this yes vote because it's going to bring uh, stability no vote would bring instability. Uh, that was the uh, logic of, you know, international markets. Basically, CHP is also looking to that. And, of course, foreign policy. And they're looking what the U.S. is saying, what the Russians are saying. They're positioning themselves, I think, with the state bureaucracy, with the consensus in the state bureaucracy. And since the state bureaucracy is controlled by Erdogan, I think, at the end of the day, CHP is going to be controlled by Erdogan. You mentioned informal working class as one of the core elements of base of support for uh, ruling justice and, and development party, AKP. Who else is there when you want to describe the base of support? Of course, informal urban poor is the major social dynamic. And two political actors have been benefiting from that. One, the AKP. Second, the Kurdish movements. Also, the base of the Kurdish movement, the HDP, is also consists mostly of informal uh, workers. These are mainly Kurds that have been 
either place, uprooted, yes, yes, uprooted internally, and now they're living in major urban centers such as Istanbul and Ankara and so forth. Exactly. I mean, one of the beneficiaries of the civil war with the Kurds, as well as actually the Syrian civil war, has been the capital, since all these wars are injecting new and cheaper labor force into the labor market and bringing down wages without necessarily a frontal attack against unions and such. So these informal workers are the major social dynamic. But if you look at, and this is the tricky part, how social control is being established over these informal workers, then we get to another social segment, which is the people who own medium or small businesses, shopkeepers, shop owners, but at the same time, people who live in the same neighborhoods or in close neighborhoods to these informal workers, but actually are landowners or shop owners. In other words, they have economic control over uh, the informal working force. These are usually the people who migrated to Istanbul or to Izmir or Ankara in the 60s and 70s or maybe 80s. And then they have been granted and they settled in public land belonging to the treasury. And they have been granted deeds of these lands by uh, municipalities in return for their votes. So by becoming landlords and then by becoming landlords, they benefited handsomely from the urbanization in uh, the 90s, from this influx of cheap labor into big cities since urban rents went up. When rents went up, you know, these social segments became wealthier and they, of course, you know, started supporting heavily the party which basically spearheaded this rent creation and rent distribution, which was the AKP. Shouldn't forget that Erdogan is, used to be the mayor of Istanbul. Most of the leadership of this party comes from municipalities which they won in 1994. So... If you want to understand the management model of the AKP, I think we should go back to this sort of distribution of urban land, this clientelistic distribution of urban land. And together with that, of course, the laws that regulate planning and zoning laws that would have to allow these people to do more construction on the smaller plots of land. Adding units. Yes, of course. For example, think in relation to Gezi protests, for example, of 2013, this was exactly what Gezi was against, Gezi protests were against. And this is exactly why Erdogan's base got even more consolidated with Gezi protests, because the Gezi protest was actually a protest against the interest of Erdogan's social base, who benefited handsomely from urban transformation. And new zoning regulations and more urban construction, which actually needs lower wages and yes. construction workers. These are the masses exactly. who have been uprooted from the rural areas yeah. into the I, cities. I call them the new Muslim Victorians. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're like the 21st century version of this up-and-coming English gentry. I mean, I had the, almost the same outlook. Yes. You know, they were yes. basically criticizing the aristocracy with debauchery, how they're alienated from Christian values. They don't, they're not hard workers. They didn't earn anything by themselves. They've been all given their wealth and status by 
uh, the state. This is exactly the kind of criticism that these liberal Islamists were voicing against Kemalists. It kind of reminds you of a process of capital accumulation in England at the time, what Karl Marx actually points out in his works. Exactly. It was basically Islamism, in that sense, was a moral justification of capital accumulation and social mobility. And the justification of this fight for political power, basically. And why was it moral? Because this moral appeal was exactly the kind of control mechanism of this class over informal workers. And this is basically typical of all kinds of inter-bourgeois conflict. The underdog faction is basically calling on the masses to help them in their struggle uh, to power. Now, the problem is, of course, what's going to happen with these people when the RKP establishes its single-party regime or a dictatorship and uh, whether this is going to be sustainable or not. Economically, it's not sustainable. Socially, it's not sustainable. And politically, I don't think it's sustainable. So basically... These, I would say, small and medium-sized shop owners and business owners are the backbone of AKP's constituency, but also, most importantly, big capital. And this is the Anatolian bourgeoisie. Anatolian bourgeoisie, but also part of the Istanbul bourgeoisie. The Istanbul bourgeoisie would always complain about uh, AKP's authoritarianism, pretty much like the CHP. But at the end of the day, I think they would also look at stability, they're going to look at their profit rates. They're going to look at their investments. And of course, they are bothered by the fact that there is increasing instability. There's also increasing closing down of basically investment horizons. You cannot foresee what's going to happen in two years, three years from now. So there's an increasing element of uncertainty. Um, yes. But there is no other way. And the whole concept of uncertainty is a very neoliberal concept. I mean, the AKP has been uh, very proud of being an efficient risk manager. They always said that, you know, without risk, there will be no gain. So this is neoliberal politics. There's actually an important rationale for the big bourgeoisie to support AKP is basically the development strategy of Turkey. The most important problem of uh, the Turkish economy is the so-called middle-income problem, which means that given its structure right now, the Turkish economy will not be able to go beyond a certain threshold of GDP per capita in this developmental strategy, because basically it doesn't produce as much value-added goods as it should to support its export-oriented growth. Its main competitive advantage, in other words, in the world economy, is cheap labor. And therein lies the problem. If you want to produce more value-added goods, then you have to invest in technology, in education, and that has not been done by the AKP. So the AKP, rather than doing that, is all about creating rents. And what is this rent? Basically, the selling of Russian gas to Europe. So becoming an energy hub. And of course, this is a very lucrative business. And I think it's the only solution for the Turkish bourgeoisie to sustain its level of profitability. And in that sense, I think the AKP government favors big capital. Potentially, they could be benefiting from the Iranian natural gas going through Turkey to Europe too. Definitely, definitely. That's even a bigger chunk of market. Exactly. 
But the problem is, of course, all these deals with Russia and Iran have to be endorsed by Europe, especially by Germany. In other words, Erdogan leadership has to convince Germany before it will take such a role in the world economy. But think about, for example, Tuprash, which is the biggest company in Turkey by far. And it has been privatized and it has been sold to the Koch company, to the Koch family, which is the biggest capital group in Turkey. So the Koch family benefited handsomely from AKP's rule. I don't think they have much reason to oppose it. But also AKP created its own big bourgeoisie, like, for example, Chaluk Holding. And it's basically also trying to engage in all sorts of primitive capital accumulation tactics and strategies to create its loyal big bourgeoisie of its own. But the relationship between these different groups, informal workers, small and medium-sized business owners, and the big bourgeoisie is going to be increasingly unsustainable politically. Uh, We have to factor in the fact that the AKP never actually encountered a big economic crisis. And this is the iron law of Turkish politics. Governments go with economic crisis. It's never failed. Let's talk about the international arena. You mentioned how the global capital markets responded positively to the referendum. What was the reaction of the U.S. government? And in general, how would you characterize the U.S.-Turkey relations? Do you see a change with the new administration in Washington? 